Hello and welcome to PassPack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPA, PAC. Today, our destination is a high-yield review of internal medicine based on the EOR topic blueprint. Please sit back, relax, and let's get to it. everyone, it's Becca. As you know, we'll be doing an overview of the highest yield internal medicine topics going in the descending order of the covered content on the EOR topic blueprint, and we'll start with cardiovascular disorders, which make up a whopping 20% of the EOR. Your 55-year-old patient arrives to the ER due to onset of chest pain while working in his garage about 25 minutes ago. He has his fist clenched over his sternum and is speaking through clenched teeth. He has a history of stable angina and is currently prescribed daily beta blockers and sublingual nitro, PRN, but for the first time, his nitro is not providing him any relief. He denies any substance use, an EKG shows T-wave depressions and leads to three, and AVF. What should be done to establish a definitive diagnosis in this patient? Coronary cath with angiogram. This will provide a definitive diagnosis of unstable angina versus NSTEMI, which should be suspected in any patient with chest pain unrelieved with nitro in the setting of a history of coronary artery disease. The only difference between unstable angina and NSTEMI, or non-STI elevated MI is the elevation of cardiac enzymes seen in NSTEMI. But given our patient is presenting within 25 minutes of onset, cardiac enzymes at this point probably will be non-diagnostic, though valuable while we initiate serial readings of the cardiac enzymes to see if there's any elevation. His EKG does not meet the criteria for an acute STEMI, which you would see obviously in ST elevation, but It does have ST depression with persistent chest pain, and those are both considered high-risk factors. Remember your steps prior to obtaining your definitive diagnosis. For example, a patient should be given high-dose aspirin, three doses of sublingual nitro at least three times, of course, unless there's contraindications like use of a PDE5 inhibitor for erectile dysfunction within 24 hours, or there's signs of a right ventricular infarct like we see in our patient with the inferior leads having the depression. You should already have established IV access and lab work should be sent off, including serial cardiac biomarkers, plus initiating oxygen therapy and possibly IV morphine for the severe pain. Assuming all of this has been started when brought in by EMS and EKG shows concerning features, antiplatelet and anticoagulation therapy should be considered and give PO beta blockers like metoprolol if no signs of heart failure, bradycardia, hemodynamic compromise, or reactive airway disease exists. If the patient was hypertensive, you could switch to IV metoprolol instead. Because our patient has evidence of a possible right ventricular infarct, given the changes to leads 2, 3, and AVF, we would want to forego the IV nitroglycerin at this time. However, in general, afterload reducers like IV nitroglycerin and loop diuretics should be given if left heart failure is present. You can assume our patient is stable for now given the lack of unstable features in the stem, but if hemodynamic compromise existed, you would want to remember your ABCs and get them into an emergent cath lab for diagnostic angiography and consider a PCI or percutaneous intervention if it's determined at that time during a cath that they need something like a stent. For higher risk patients undergoing cath with or without a PCI, you can consider adding on a GP2B3A inhibitor before angiography. Additionally, a patient should be started on a high-intensity statin if they're not already on it, like a torvastatin. Cardiac catheterization with angiogram will provide a definitive diagnosis with the option of performing a PCI if need for a stent is identified given the blockage. In really low-risk patients who present with stable angina or a low probability of ongoing ischemia by evidence of relief of chest pain with normal serial troponins, you can consider non-cardiac causes or if they're high risk of cardiac disease given age, presentation, family history, etc., consider obtaining non-invasive cardiac evaluation such as nuclear stress tests prior to discharging. Remember, if a patient has a STEMI or evidence of infarction, they should be discharged with an ACE inhibitor 
which are proven to decrease left ventricular hypertrophy and remodeling, improving their ejection fraction. Your 17-year-old patient is brought in via EMS after fainting during a football game. He is stable now, but thinks he might have just been dehydrated, though he felt shortness of breath and dizziness before he passed out. Physical exam reveals a loud S4 and harsh crescendo-decrescendo murmur over the apex and left lower sternal border. EKG reveals prominent Q waves and deeply inverted T waves. What is the initial management of the suspected diagnosis? This is initiation of negative ionotropic agents like cardioselective beta blockers such as metoprolol or even non-dihydropyridine CCBs like verapamil can be initiated in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These agents both decrease contractility and will slow down heart rate, which are two huge contributors to the outflow obstruction that can lead to death if they're elevated. Drugs that decrease preload like nitrates, diuretics, ACE inhibitors, and ARBs should all be avoided, and digoxin is contraindicated due to its positive ionotropic action. In a patient who presents with syncope or had sudden cardiac arrest, there should be a strong consideration to implanting a cardio defibrillator. All patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy need to be advised to avoid strenuous exercise and dehydration, both of which can increase the outflow obstruction. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is an autosomal dominant genetic condition and is the most common cause of sudden cardiac death in young athletes. So typically, stems are going to present with an athlete who either faints or experiences dyspnea on exertion during their practice or a game. While most other cardiomyopathies present with systolic dysfunction, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a diastolic dysfunction. This can be remembered if you visualize the thickened ventricle that is so thick and heavy it really can't stretch easily and that leads to a decrease in preload, which is a diastolic problem. Considering the left ventricle is so big and muscly, the systolic function is intact because it typically has no problem forcing that blood out because it's so strong, but instead its problem is allowing for actual filling. Additionally, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy will have that asymmetrical intraventricular septum leading to that characteristic murmur we talked about, and that will decrease with increased preload when it flattens the septum out and it decreases with a decreased preload. So the septum isn't flattened and that will obstruct the outflow even more, leading to a higher intensity murmur versus the other valvular murmurs besides MVP or mitral valve prolapse, which all increase with increased preload and decrease with decreased preload. What dynamic maneuvers increase preload versus decrease preload? Valsalva and standing will decrease your preload, which again will increase the sound of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy murmur, and leg raise and squatting will increase the preload, which decreases the sound of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy murmur. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy also commonly presents with that S4 gallop, which is also called an atrial gallop, and that occurs right before S1 when the atria is trying to squeeze that blood that's vibrating against this really non-compliant left ventricle. Other signs may include JV pulse with the prominent A wave. And as with other structural heart conditions, cardiac echo is diagnostic and that will show that left ventricular hypertrophy with the asymmetrical thickened septum and a diastolic dysfunction. How does paroxysmal SVT appear on an EKG and what are the different treatment options? SVT will appear as a narrow QRS complex tachycardia, which often has no identifiable P wave or possibly a delayed and inverted P wave. There's not going to be any drop beats or extra beats usually in the stem, and the rhythm will appear regular just fast. The most common cause of SVT is an AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, and that's when there's this reentrant conduction circulating within the AV node itself. The P wave, which results from the SA node perceiving that impulse leading to an atrial depolarization, will either be buried within the QRS due to the initial impulse coming from the AV node, or it'll be inverted and shown after the QRS due to the delayed atrial contraction from the electrical conduction traveling backwards from the AV node away from your EKG lead, which will result in that inversion. The patient will either present stable or unstable, 
and that will determine your treatment options. Signs of instability include impending or current hemodynamic compromise, so always look at your vital signs. Or even if they just have an altered mental status, you should assume that there is hemodynamic compromise. If a patient is stable and asymptomatic, the initial treatment will be a vagal maneuver in which the patient should be instructed to bear down in order to increase that intrathoracic pressure. If the patient's stable and symptomatic or the vagal maneuver was unsuccessful, the treatment of choice is adenosine, 6 milligrams rapid bolus IV push, and that will lead to a transient inhibition of that AV node conduction, and you should advise the patient they're likely going to feel sick or might have a sensation of impending doom for the few seconds during this time where you're inhibiting their cardiac function. If the 6 milligram bolus doesn't correct the SVT, you can go up to 12 milligrams followed by another 6 milligrams, and in over 80% of cases, you're going to terminate the SVT with just the adenosine itself. If the adenosine doesn't work, you can give them IV deltiasm or metoprolol to control their rate and decrease that AV node conduction. If the patient is unstable, always remember, unstable gets the cable. That means electricity. Because this is a regular rhythm with an identifiable QRS, you should always choose synchronized cardioversion because the machine will be able to identify and synchronize to deliver the shocks on time with the QRS. Any patient that has an irregular rhythm with an unidentifiable QRS, such as in V-fib, you would choose defibrillation, which is an unsynchronized cardioversion. What underlying cause of paroxysmal SVT would you suspect if this patient has had prior EKGs showing a shortened PR interval and wide upsloping QRS complexes? Wolf-Parkinson-White. You should suspect this given the description of delta waves. In the case of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which is not SVT in and of itself, but places the patient at risk of SVT and can lead to a reentrant tachycardia through this accessory pathway called the bundle of Kent. So not the AV node itself within the AV node, like we see in AVNRT, but in circulating through the AV node bundle of Kent, AV node bundle of Kent like that. If reentrant tachycardia occurs, it can either be orthodromic in which the conduction will begin at the AV node just like normal, but will travel through to the accessory pathway as it fires off the ventricles, and that will lead to a narrow complex tachycardia. It can also be antidromic in which the opposite kind of occurs. So you'll have the conduction here starting at that accessory pathway, the bundle of Kent, and that pre-excites the ventricles and then travels almost backwards to the AV node. And so that's much slower. It's going to widen your QRS, and that's when you'd see that wide QRS SVT. Immediate treatment is similar to SVT, which is stable gets vagal and or adenosine, and unstable gets the cable. So stable gets vagal, unstable gets the cable. At the end of the day, the definitive treatment of Wolf-Parkinson-White includes catheter ablation of the accessory pathway or even surgical ablation if needed. Your patient is a 56-year-old postmenopausal female with a past medical history of generalized anxiety disorder and a social history notable for the recent passing of her wife. She presents with acute substernal chest pain and shortness of breath. EKG reveals a STEMI in the anterior precordial leads, but in the cath lab, there is no angiographic evidence of any obstruction or acute plaque rupture. What should be suspected is the cause of this patient's presentation. Stress cardiomyopathy, aka Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. This will present with transient regional systolic dysfunction and can mimic an acute STEMI both in clinical signs and symptoms and on EKG with an elevated troponin. However, the key here is that there's not going to be any evidence of coronary artery disease once you evaluate them in the cath lab. This condition has also been known as broken heart syndrome and is classically seen after a major physical or psychological stressor, such as the death of a loved one as we see in the stem. In stress cardiomyopathy, there will be a regional wall motion abnormality that can even extend beyond the territory that's perfused normally by a specific coronary artery. So the pathogenesis is poorly understood, but proposed mechanisms include excess of catecholamines, microvascular dysfunction, or even a coronary artery spasm. Because stress cardiomyopathy is generally transient, treatment is usually just supportive and conservative. However, some patients can develop shock or heart failure, which results in intensive therapy with following standard heart failure guidelines after stabilization. 
Occasionally, there might be need for mechanical circulatory support, like with a percutaneous flow device. Since there's going to be a risk of intraventricular thrombus in patients with systolic dysfunction and wall motion abnormalities, you should consider an echo to evaluate if there's a thrombus and initiate anticoagulation if you see one. What are some common medications used as lipid-lowering therapy, and what are some high-yield adverse effects or contraindications associated with them? So first line and the first thought that should come to your mind is statins, and the adverse effects for these are rhabdomyolysis, increased LFTs or hepatic injury, and it potentiates warfarin, and remember, statins are a pregnancy category X. The next one you should think of is azetamibe, and this is the only non-statin that has proven to prevent cardiovascular disease adverse events when they're combined with a statin. However, these can also increase your LFTs. PCKS9 inhibitors like alirocumab or evolocumab are most commonly associated with injection site reactions as their most common adverse effect. Fibric acid derivatives like phenofibrate or gemfibrozil can have some drug-drug interactions such as phenofibrate decreasing cyclosporine or gemfibrozil can increase warfarin as well. Nicotinic acid, also called niacin, can lead to classic symptoms of flushing, headaches, warmth, pruritus, and even acanthosis nigricans. Then you have your bile acid sequestrants like cholecystyramine and cholestopol. These can cause bloating, cramping, again, increased LFTs, and also can impair absorption of fat-soluble vitamins and medications. The last one we'll mention is neomycin, and this is high yield for causing nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity as their adverse effects. And I remember this by NEO, N-E-O, so N stands for nephrotoxic and O stands for ototoxic, and that's how I kind of remember that one. Your patient is a 27-year-old who arrives to the ER due to new onset exercise intolerance and excessive fatigue. He denies any history of substance use and is not taking any medication. He states he's generally healthy but had a small cold last week that resolved on its own. Physical exam is notable for a new summation gallop and EKG reveals nonspecific ST changes in the setting of tachycardia. His cardiac enzymes are elevated and cardiac cath reveals no coronary artery disease. What would provide definitive diagnosis for your top differential? endomyocardial biopsy provides the definitive diagnosis of myocarditis. However, this is generally not done due to its low sensitivity and high risk of complications. Myocarditis is due to cardiac cell necrosis secondary to inflammation of the myocardium, and this can be caused by almost everything it seems, but most commonly is going to be secondary to a viral infection like Coxsackie B virus. Other causes of myocarditis include parasites like T. cruzi, aka Chagas disease, bacterial causes like Lyme disease, autoimmune conditions like SLE and Kawasaki's, vaccines, or can even be idiopathic. EKG is really variable, but you might see a saddle-shaped ST elevation or even just non-specific changes or arrhythmias to heart block. So you really have to have a high index of suspicion if you have a patient that has a history of viral illness and new EKG changes or even pericarditis with cardiac injury evidenced by the elevated enzymes, and there'll be a normal cardiac cath or even cardiac MRI. Physical findings might be present with unexplained sinus tachycardia that's out of proportion to any fever the patient might have and they might have new onset dyspnea and excessive fatigue, which later can escalate to heart failure and risk for sudden cardiac death. A summation gallop is a high-yield finding for myocardial disease, and this is a result of both the S3 and S4 sound audible. Pulses will also typically be weak, and there may be a pericardial friction rub if pericarditis is also present. In patients with suspected viral causes, therapy is going to be supportive, and heart failure therapy should be initiated as needed. Also consider antidysrhythmics or need for immunosuppressants or IVIG if suspecting an autoimmune etiology. And of course, bacterial and parasitic etiologies can be treated with antibiotics or antiparasitics respectfully. If suspecting myocarditis is secondary to a drug toxicity, you should stop the drug and give corticosteroids. Your patient is a 21-year-old male with past medical history notable for Marfan syndrome who presents for an annual follow-up. Cardiac auscultation reveals a late systolic murmur preceded by a mid-systolic click best heard at the apex. The intensity of the murmur increases with standing and decreases with squatting. What do you most suspect? So this is another one of your weird murmurs, which is mitral valve prolapse. Most cases are asymptomatic, and because the patient is presenting for an annual follow-up with no chief concerns otherwise mentioned, 
we can kind of assume that he's asymptomatic as well. If the prolapse is severe, you might have symptoms of palpitations, dyspnea, fatigue, and non-exertional chest pain. The murmur is again unique that it will increase with decreased preload and decrease with increased preload, much like we see with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Like we mentioned, the other valvular murmurs are opposite. So just remember that MVP and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy dare to be different, and different is always high yield. The diagnostic test of choice is echocardiogram, specifically transesophageal echocardiogram. In severe cases of MVP that are symptomatic or at risk of progressing to mitral valve regurgitation, you can repair the valve percutaneously or with surgery. If mitral valve regurgitation develops, which should be suspected with that new blowing systolic murmur at the apex that radiates to the left axilla or if acute, can lead to that harsh mid-systolic murmur that radiates to the base and has rapid onset of left heart failure, then treatment is with afterload-reducing agents like nitrates, beta blockers, CCBs, or ACE inhibitors, and you should do anticoagulation if AFib develops or if TEE visualizes a thrombus. Valve replacement should be done in patients that are surgical candidates with clinically significant disease. Your 15-year-old patient presents with new-onset joint pain, sometimes affecting her elbows, sometimes affecting her knees, and new development of a widespread, non-paritic rash that spares her face. She also has painless, firm nodules overlying her lower extremities. Physical exam reveals she has a temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit, and auscultation of the apex reveals a new, glowing systolic murmur that radiates towards her left axilla. Her past medical history is unremarkable aside from a sore throat a couple weeks ago that her mom states went away on its own. How should you treat the suspected diagnosis at this time? IM penicillin G benzathine every 21 to 28 days for at least 10 years or until the age 40. This patient most likely has acute rheumatic fever secondary to an untreated strep infection. You should have suspected this even if she presented the same way, but her past medical history was notable for a scarlet fever or even impetigo. Acute rheumatic fever is diagnosed based on the Jones criteria, which requires evidence of a streptococcal infection like with anti-streptinolysin O or strep antibodies, positive strep throat culture, or a positive rapid antigen test or even recent scarlet fever. In addition to evidence of a current or prior strep infection and initial acute rheumatic fever, you need either two major Jones criteria or one major and two minor criteria. I remember the major criteria by the mnemonic Jones, where J stands for joints, aka arthritis, O is shaped like a heart to represent carditis, N is for nodules, E is for erythema margitanum, and S stands for Sinenham's chorea, also known as St. Vitus dance, which results in that abrupt, purposeless movement as seen in chorea. Minor Jones criteria include arthralgias, so not arthritis, but arthralgias, fever, elevated inflammatory markers like CRP or ESR, and prolonged PRI on an EKG. Treatment of rheumatic fever essentially depends on the presence of cardiac involvement. So standard of care will basically just include penicillin and NSAIDs and then monitoring CRP for a decrease in inflammation even after removing the NSAIDs. Specifically, the duration of treatment with penicillin depends on the following. If valvular heart disease is present, they will need monthly IM penicillin for 10 years or until age 40, whichever is longer. If carditis is present but there's no valvular disease, you'll do monthly IM penicillin for 10 years or until age 21, whichever is longer. If the heart is not affected in the course of an acute rheumatic fever, then you'll give monthly IM penicillin for five years or until 21, again, whichever is longer. And alternatives to IM penicillin include PO penicillin V twice a day or even azithromycin 250 milligrams PO daily if they're allergic to penicillin. If the valves are damaged enough, surgery for valve replacement or repair might be warranted. Okay, we will cover a whole bunch of cardio high yields later with our rapid review, but now let's move on to pulmonology, which makes up 15% of the EOR. Your patient is a 66-year-old male with a long-standing history of COPD who presents to your clinic due to increased sputum production that has a particularly foul odor. Additionally, he is reporting chest pain that's worse with inspiration, and physical exam reveals crackles and wheezing overlying the inferior lung fields bilaterally. Vitals are largely normal aside from a slight fever and O2 sat of 90%. What is the gold standard for diagnosing your top differential? CT of the chest is considered gold standard for the diagnosis of bronchiectasis, 
which is secondary to the permanently dilated or destructed bronchial walls due to the chronic inflammation and infection. While the most common cause of bronchiectasis is cystic fibrosis, you should also suspect this in any patient with long-standing pulmonary inflammation or recurrent pulmonary infections like COPD with increase in purulent and foul-smelling sputum. Most commonly, bronchiectasis is due to viruses like adenovirus and influenza that can also be bacterial with common causes including strep pneumonia and even pseudomonas. Differentiate this from pneumonia, which will more commonly present with a specified area of consolidation unilaterally. And another way to differentiate from pneumonia is with imaging, specifically in chest x-ray, where bronchiectasis will be unique due to the appearance of linear, quote-unquote, tram track lung markings from the thickened bronchial walls and plate-like atelectasis secondary to scarring. The mainstay of treatment for bronchiectasis includes treatment of the underlying infection, typically with aggressive antibiotic therapy. Additional treatment includes chest physiotherapy, endomethacin, bronchodilators, supplemental oxygen, and treatment of underlying diseases as warranted. And remember, the definitive treatment is going to be lung transplant. Your 40-year-old male patient with a BMI of 51 is admitted to the hospital due to new onset dyspnea and exertion with lower extremity swelling. Physical reveals JVD and hepatojugular reflux with palpation of the enlarged liver. He denies any past medical history, but his wife mentions she's been trying to get him to go for a health checkup due to his horrible snoring which she states can sometimes abruptly stop and seems like he isn't breathing at all. Vitals reveal he is afebrile, BP is 140 over 88, with respiratory rate of 10. ABG reveals a PCO2 of 48. Assuming he is stable, what is the first-line therapy for this suspected diagnosis? Weight loss and positive airway pressure is the first-line treatment in patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome plus obstructive sleep apnea. You can use nocturnal CPAP or BiPAP if the CPAP fails or they also have hypoventilation during sleep. Supplemental oxygen is required if they have severe hypoventilation and still can't reach their vent goals. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome, which was previously known as Pickwickian syndrome, is secondary to hypercapnia and the alveoli during wakefulness and it's not attributed to anything except obesity. Typically, they're going to have obstructive sleep apnea on presentation, but late stages might present with core pulmonale, which is right heart failure due to that pulmonary hypertension, like in our patient. ABG will represent a pattern of chronic hypoventilation. So you'll see a primary respiratory acidosis, which you see with that increase of CO2 retention, with full metabolic compensation due to this chronic nature. So in addition to the PCO2 being over 45, bicarb is also going to be elevated, which might result in a normal pH overall. To diagnose OHS, you should rule out differentials including hypothyroidism, electrolyte disturbances, COPD, interstitial lung disease, and external factors like drugs and alcohol. Your 60-year-old male patient is admitted to the hospital due to new-onset dyspnea and cough in the setting of an abnormal chest x-ray, which shows eggshell calcifications that are mostly in the upper lung fields. History reveals he's retired but was formerly working as a sandblaster for many years. What is your top differential? Silicosis, which is a restrictive lung disease under the overall umbrella of pneumoconiosis, is secondary to inhalation of particulate matter. Typically, the stems are going to differentiate the type of pneumoconiosis based on the patient's occupational history. For example, silica exposure is associated with sandblasting and coal mining, and asbestos exposure is associated with shipbuilding, construction, and roofing. The three most common causes of pneumoconiosis in the United States include silicosis, asbestosis, and anthracosis, which is also known as coal workers' pneumoconiosis, and that's secondary to coal dust. In addition to the occupational exposure, the various forms of pneumoconiosis appear differently on chest x-ray. So silicosis, like our patient has, is going to be classically described with eggshell calcifications in the upper lung fields, but there also might be mention of miliary calcifications in the spleen that's visualized on a chest x-ray. Whereas asbestosis is going to be classically described as the pleural plaques in the lower lobes. I remember this by thinking the base affects the roof and things from the roof affect the base. So asbestosis exposure from roofing construction affects the base of the lungs. Silicosis and or coal exposure from the base, aka earth, is going to affect the roof of the lungs, aka the upper lobes. You may also be given histology in the stem or answer choices revealing asbestos bodies, and those are going to look like transparent skinny fibers surrounded by iron or a protein coating. Management is supportive, and that includes removing or minimizing the exposures and smoking cessation if they smoke. Complications of pneumoconiosis is bronchogenic carcinoma. 
Remember, the most common lung cancer overall is adenocarcinoma, which is also true when discussing the malignancies caused by pneumoconiosis. Try not to get confused between the most common disease versus the most common risk factor or etiology behind a certain disease. To explain it more, the most common cause of lung cancer overall, like we said, is adenocarcinoma, regardless of risk factors, which is why the stem will usually present with somebody without a smoking history, because while cigarette smoking is the most common risk factor for developing lung cancer overall, this risk factor in stems is usually trying to point you towards a diagnosis that is more commonly seen in patients that have that risk factor, whereas adenocarcinoma occurs so frequently that it's also occurring in non-smokers. However, if you take a less common cause of lung cancer like squamous cell carcinoma, this is more likely going to present in smokers, so the risk factor will be a part of the stem. So it isn't necessarily that smokers only get squamous cell carcinoma, but more so that squamous cell carcinoma will most commonly occur in someone with a history of smoking. Same with small cell carcinoma, which is even less common than squamous cell carcinoma, but is almost exclusively seen in smokers and is also the most aggressive form of lung cancer overall. The same concept applies to malignant mesothelioma. If a patient has malignant mesothelioma, their history is going to definitely include asbestos exposure, but it's important to remember this is still really rare and the most common cause of lung cancer from asbestosis overall is still gonna be your adenocarcinoma. So make sure that you're reading the question really carefully to see if they're asking for a cancer specific to a certain population, like those with asbestosis, or the most common cause of lung cancer from asbestosis overall, which is adenocarcinoma. You are consulted regarding a possible medical omission from the ER. The patient is a 45-year-old woman with relatively unremarkable past medical history who has a sudden onset of cough, fatigue, and fever. She assumes she caught the flu from her preschooler, but her symptoms have been worsening and she is feeling like she's having increased difficulty breathing. Physical reveals rails overlying the right lower lobe with associated agophony, increased tactile fremitus, and dullness to percussion. This is visualized as a lobar consolidation on chest x-ray. Her vitals are within normal limits aside from a low-grade fever and her labs reveal BUN is 12 milligrams per deciliter. What do you decide regarding her possible admission? Using the common algorithm CURB-65 to determine admission need for community-acquired pneumonia, this patient currently does not warrant inpatient treatment at this time. CURB-65 is a mnemonic standing for confusion, urea, aka BUN or BUN, over 19 milligrams or over 7 millimoles, respiratory rate over 30, BP less than 90 over 60, and 65 years or older. Each of the CURB-65 components is given a score of 1. So adults who have a CURB score of 0, like our patient does, without any comorbidities, can just be given high-dose amoxicillin plus a macrolide like azithromycin or doxycycline. If our outpatient had the same presentation but had comorbidities or recent antibiotic use, we would want to give augmented plus a macrolide like azithromycin or doxycycline. If a patient has a history of penicillin anaphylaxis, you can use monotherapy respiratory fluoroquinolones, but this is avoided as much as possible to curb the growing resistance. Those with a CURB-65 score of 2 have a higher 30-day mortality than those with a score of 0 or 1, and they should be considered for admission. If they're really compliant and have an established PCP, you can consider close outpatient management, but most patients with this score are really going to need to be admitted. CURB 65 scores of 3 to 5 indicate a 22% 30-day mortality risk, and these patients definitely need to be admitted. Inpatient treatments for CAP include beta-lactams like ceftriaxone or unison, which is ampicillin sulbactam, plus a macrolide like azithromycin. If there's concern for pseudomonas, you initiate anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams like piptazo, aka zosin, plus a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. If there's any suspicion for MRSA, you need to add vancomycin or linezolid. Prior to initiating antibiotics inpatient, you need at least two cultures and a sputum gram stain. You can start empiric treatment while waiting for the results of the culture and sensitivities and up or downgrade antibiotics depending on what the CNS shows. Remember, overall, the most common cause of CAP or CAP is strep pneumo, so all of the antibiotics we use are going to be things that give good gram-negative coverage. Once there's a concern for MRSA or pseudomonas, you have to add on antibiotics that cover for MRSA and or pseudomonas, like vancomycin or zosin, aka pitazo, respectively. Another scoring system that's used for admission consideration to be aware of, especially during clinicals or working in IM, is PSI, which is the Pneumonia Severity Index. If your patient is a 55-year-old male who's in general good health but is currently smoking with a 30-pack year history, what screening recommendation do you have at this time given his risk factors? 
Annual low-dose helical CT scan is recommended by the ACS for anyone 55 to 80 years old in good health with a 30-year or more pack-year history and is currently smoking or has quit within the past 15 years. The USPSTF has similar recommendations, but instead recommends low-dose CT for patients with a 20-pack-year history who are current smokers or who have quit within the past 15 years. If there is a suspicion of lung cancer, you need to move on to diagnostic measures, so you would not choose a low-dose CT as a diagnostic modality, but instead consider initial x-ray with CT scanning and confirmatory biopsy. Remember, screening mechanisms are sensitive, and they're meant to be for low-risk patients to rule out illness, while diagnostic mechanisms are more specific and meant to rule in a diagnosis and a patient with a suspected illness like biopsy. Your patient is a 35-year-old woman with new onset and progressive fatigue and weight loss. For the past few weeks, she's had a cough, low-grade fever, and joint pain. Physical reveals violaceous raised plaques around her cheeks, nose, and eyes, which she states have been present for a long time. Her labs are notable for elevated ESR, hypercalcemia, and an elevated serum ACE. You order a chest x-ray, which reveals bilateral hilar adenopathy. Based on your top differential, what do you suspect histology will show for the biopsy of her skin lesions? Non-caseating granulomas. This patient has a clinical presentation and diagnostics supporting the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. In patients with sarcoidosis affecting the lungs, endobronchial lung biopsy is definitive, but biopsy can be performed on the most accessible lesions affected, which in this case is the patient's cutaneous sarcoid involvement, which is termed lupus perineal. The initial test of choice in patients with suspected sarcoid includes chest x-ray, and the next is a high-res CT if chest x-ray has findings concerning for pulmonary sarcoid, like the bilateral perihilar adenopathy we see in our patient. An elevated serum ACE is also concerning for sarcoidosis and can be a high-yield lab finding on your stems. Hypercalcemia is also commonly elevated due to the uncontrolled synthesis of calcitriol, which is the active vitamin D metabolite, and ESR is typically elevated given the inflammatory nature of this disease process. The treatment of choice in patients with pulmonary sarcoidosis is systemic corticosteroids and consideration for methotrexate or other immunosuppressants if the patient is non-responsive to steroids. Okay, that was a good amount of pulmonary, and we're going to hit on more later in our rapid review, but for now, let's keep it moving with GIN nutrition, which accounts for 12% of the EOR. Your patient is a 33-year-old female with past medical history of GERD who presents to your clinic due to continued dysphagia despite PPI therapy. Physical exam reveals a thin patient with conjunctival pallor, a smooth red tongue, and chelosis. You consult GI for an upper endoscopy, and they report during the procedure they visualized a thin mucous membrane encroaching over the lumen of her mid-upper esophagus. What diagnosis do you suspect? Plummer Vincent syndrome. This syndrome, while rare, is high yield given its unique triad of iron deficiency anemia, dysphagia, and esophageal webbing. Other findings in Plummer Vincent syndrome include glossitis and angular chelitis, with other possible findings associated with iron deficiency anemia like conjunctival pallor or even coilonychia. These patients may require esophageal dilation if there is significant obstruction of the lumen, but in most cases, replenishing the iron might resolve their dysphagia. An esophageal web is similar to an esophageal ring, however, a web is going to be much thinner and is going to be eccentric while a ring is concentric encircling the entire lumen and is typically between 2 to 5 millimeters. The most common cause of esophageal stricture overall is long-standing GERD, leading to scarring and narrowing of the esophagus from stomach acid. The most common cause of an esophageal ring is a Schatzky ring, thought to be secondary to GERD, and is nearly almost always associated with a hiatal hernia. Schatzky rings are in the lower esophagus and typically present with classically progressive dysphagia with an acute food impaction after wolfing down a meal, awarding it the nickname steakhouse syndrome. Some cases of Schatzky ring have also been seen in those with eosinophilic esophagitis, but the most high-yield thing to know about EOE is tracheolization or felinization of the esophagus, giving rise to that classic appearance of the ribbed esophagus with those multiple concentric rings and the linear furrowing. History is important when considering the differentials of dysphagia. For example, if you have a patient that's describing progressive dysphagia to both solids and liquids, we would probably really want to think about achalasia, which is that motility disorder causing a tightening of the LES that leads to the classic bird beak tapering on the barium swallow. Whatever the cause of dysphagia, the diagnosis is going to be made by upper endoscopy. So I'd really recommend being able to determine a diagnosis based on a picture of an endoscopy finding. 
Your patient is a 60-year-old female who presents with colicky abdominal pain, bloating, and a few episodes of bilious vomiting. She denies any past medical history aside from having a cholecystectomy years ago. She denies any diarrhea and states she actually hasn't been able to pass bowel movement at all for the past few days. Physical reveals high-pitched, hyperactive bowel signs diffusely over the abdomen with tympanic percussion and no rebound tenderness. You order a KUB series and find distended loops of bowel with air fluid levels present and no visualization of colonic gas. What do you suspect is the underlying cause of your top differential? Adhesions. Small bowel obstruction in adults is most commonly associated with post-op adhesions, which are also known as mechanical obstructions. This should be suspected in a patient with a history of abdominopelvic surgery with new onset abdominal pain, obstipation, high-pitched hyperactive bowel sounds at first, which might progress to hypoactive bowel sounds the later they present, and an abdominal radiograph showing evidence of dilated bowel with air fluid levels and little to no gas in the colon. In kids, the most common cause of SBO is intussusception, which will present with current jelly stools, sausage-shaped mass in the abdomen, and intermittent knees-to-chest position with a pained cry. Had the patient presented with similar symptoms but a more gradual or indolent abdominal pain on and off with less frequent vomiting, fever, and tachycardia with dilation of the intestine on KUB, the stem is likely wanting you to consider a large bowel obstruction, which is most commonly going to be at the sigmoid colon and secondary to neoplasms. Treatment for small and large bowel obstruction is going to be making the patient NPO and administering IV fluids. Then you'll initiate decompression via an NG tube, pain management, and surgery if mechanical obstruction is the suspected cause. If any time there's free air seen on the x-ray with visualizing a quote-unquote right-sided gastric bubble on the radiograph, that indicates emergent surgery due to the apparent perforation. You are called to consult on a patient who's a 36-year-old male with a history of cirrhosis presenting with rapidly increasing ascites. Additionally, you note a 30-pound weight loss from when he last presented to the ER a few years ago when he was originally diagnosed with cirrhosis. Aspiration of the ascites reveals sanguineous fluid and labs reveal increased AFP level. He has never had prophylactic ultrasounds of his liver, but based on his current presentation, you suspect which diagnosis at this time. Hepatocellular carcinoma. The most common cause of hepatocellular carcinoma is cirrhosis of nearly any etiology, but most commonly is going to be secondary to chronic infection with hep B or C. A less common etiology, yet high yield for exams to know, is Wilson's disease, which is the buildup of copper. Ultrasound screening every 6 to 12 months is commonly recommended for patients with cirrhosis with or without a history of HCV and chronic HBV even in the absence of cirrhosis. If the lesion found is over 1 centimeter, you're going to need to get a CT or MRI to diagnose hepatocellular carcinoma if radiologic hallmarks are noted. And if you don't visualize any hallmarks on CT or MRI, then you're going to need to acquire a biopsy for definitive diagnosis. Alpha-fetoprotein, AFP, is the most commonly used serum marker for hepatocellular carcinoma and elevated levels in a high-risk patient should raise the suspicion of this diagnosis. The mainstay of treatment for hepatocellular carcinoma is surgical resection since many of these patients are not eligible for transplant due to the underlying disease or tumor burden. However, if there's only one tumor or just a few small discrete tumors that are isolated to the liver, you could then consider a transplant. Remember, while hepatocellular carcinoma is the most common cause for primary hepatic malignancy, the most common malignancy overall affecting the liver is from metastatic disease, usually from the GI tract. Your patient is a 22-year-old male who arrives to the ED for recurrent hematochesia and abdominal cramping. After consulting GI who performs colonoscopy, they report visualization of continuous mucosal inflammation starting from the rectum and progressing proximally. What are some high-yield extra-intestinal manifestations associated with your suspected diagnosis? Primary sclerosing cholangitis and ankylosing spondylitis are probably the two highest-yield extra-intestinal manifestations of ulcerative colitis, but others can include pyoderma gangrenosum, erythema nodosum, sacroiliitis, arthritis, liver disease, and renal stones. Primary sclerosing cholangitis is considered the most serious liver disease associated with IBD and can progress to cirrhosis or even hepatobiliary cancer. Let's shift to ortho and rheumatology, which also make up 12% of the IM EOR. 
Your patient is a 40-year-old male admitted to your service due to new onset fatigue and fever in the setting of progressive joint and muscle pain, as well as significant weight loss secondary to cytophobia. On physical exam, you note painful, violaceous plaques on his lower extremities surrounded by levito reticularis. Additionally, you note unilateral foot drop when observing his gait. Vitals reveal temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit, BP of 180 over 98, heart rate of 88, and respiratory rate of 16. Labs are notable for elevated creatinine, ESR, and CRP. ANCA is negative. Mesenteric and renal angiography shows microaneurysms in the small arteries and beading in the medium arteries. Biopsy confirms your suspected diagnosis, which is what? Polyarteritis nodosa. This is a systemic necrotizing vasculitis which will affect both small and medium arteries, not veins or venules, and is most commonly idiopathic, and the most common organ affected is the kidneys, which leads to that hypertension and renal failure. Of note, patients are typically middle-aged males that might have a history of hepatitis B or C in the stem. High-yield findings in polyarteritis nodosa include starburst levito, which is pathognomonic, and we describe that in our stem as that painful, violaceous plaque with the levito reticularis surrounding it. One of the most common findings is mononeuropathy, like wrist or foot drop. And finally, these patients can also classically present with signs and symptoms of mesenteric ischemia, as our patient has with cytophobia, which is the fear of eating, and that's usually due to this abdominal pain that's triggered by food. Separating the different types of vasculitides by organs of involvement is commonly helpful. For example, good pasture syndrome is a small vessel vasculitide that's normally going to present with a combination of pulmonary and renal symptoms. Granulomatous with polyangitis, another small vessel vasculitis, can also present with pulmonary and renal, but also will have this weird component of sinusitis. And then you have your medium vessel vasculitides, including polyarteritis nodosa, but also Bichette disease, which classically affects the mouth, genitals, and eyes. Higher yield, large vessel vasculitides to know, which you probably have already heard of, is giant cell arteritis that can lead to classic symptoms of the jaw claudication, temporal artery tenderness, and transient to permanent blindness. All of the vasculitides are pretty much treated the same way, plus or minus some differences, but if you have to ever guess, choose prednisone. If prednisone isn't an option, you can choose cyclophosphamide, and obviously it's not as easy as that, but if you're in a rut and ask for the treatment of a vasculitide and have no idea, your best bet is to choose prednisone. Your patient is a 27-year-old male that's admitted due to progressive dysphagia, fatigue, and generalized weakness with stiff joint. Physical shows tightened skin around his fingers with pitting at the tips, and labs are positive for anti-topoisomerase 1. What diagnosis do you most suspect? <music> Systemic or diffuse scleroderma. He has signs and symptoms of scleroderma, and the antibody, antitopoisomerase 1, suggests the diffuse disease first if he only had Crest syndrome or limited scleroderma, which would be seen with an anti-centromere antibody, and that actually holds a better prognosis. Treatment for scleroderma depends on managing acute presentation or the specific organs involved. Remember, the most common cause of death from scleroderma is pulmonary disease. We'll tackle more high-yield ortho and rheumatology in our rapid review, but now let's move on to endocrine, which makes up 8% of the EOR. Your patient is an 8-year-old female with no past medical history who presents to the ER with a little nausea and fatigue. Her weight has dropped according to her parents, and she appears pale and drowsy. When questioning the patient's symptoms, she states she's really tired and thirsty all the time now, and her mom states she's noticed she's been constantly using the bathroom, even waking up frequently in the night just to pee. Physical reveals dry mucous membranes, decreased skin turgor, and a sweet smell to her breath. Her vitals reveal she is afebrile with a heart rate of 115, blood pressure of 100 over 72, respirations of 26 with deep expirations and inhalations. What do you suspect the labs will show? Given the likely diagnosis of diabetic ketoacidosis in a patient with an undiagnosed diabetes type 1, you should suspect the labs will show hyperglycemia with a blood glucose at least over 200, 
high anion gap metabolic acidosis, abnormal serum sodium, and that can range from hyponatremia, which is more common because of the increased plasma osmolarity, but it can also be mildly hypernatremic, and that's going to be secondary to that osmotic diuresis from the glucosuria, leading to a water loss that's more than the sodium loss. There's going to be a total body serum potassium deficit that might appear normal due to redistribution, And that's why regardless of the initial potassium level, you should plan on replacing the potassium and monitor carefully while you're giving insulin and fluids, correcting that DKA. Normal to high serum phosphate secondary to cellular shifting from an overall depletion secondary to phosphoturia from the osmotic diuresis might also be seen. When DKA is treated, the phosphate typically levels out to normal, and so you're not usually going to be repleting that phosphate. The urine or blood will show positive ketones. There may be an elevated BUN in the urine and occasionally creatinine as well, secondary to this hypovolemia or dehydration that can lead to a subsequent AKI. The name of the game with DKA is dehydration, which needs to be corrected with fluids to resolve. Dehydration leading to DKA can be due to many etiologies, but the most common is secondary to an underlying infection. Treatment of DKA includes large volume fluids inpatient and IV insulin with the monitoring of that potassium and repletion as warranted. You need to continue giving the insulin as you close that anion gap and will usually need to add dextrose to the intravascular fluids in order to keep them from bottoming out while closing the gap. Rehydration and reduction of osmolality needs to be monitored and not performed too rapidly or you risk cerebral edema. Your patient is a 52-year-old woman who presents with fatigue, irritability, muscle spasms, and perioral paresthesias. History reveals she had a recent thyroidectomy and your physical shows a carpal pedal spasm with progressively squeezing her blood pressure cuff and tapping her facial nerve results in an uncontrolled contraction of the ipsilateral facial muscles. What do you suspect labs to show? low PTH, low ionized calcium, and high phosphorus. This patient has evidence of hypoparathyroidism, which is most commonly iatrogenic, secondary to a surgical resection of some or all of the thyroid. Patients might have symptoms like a hoarse voice from the bronchospasms, personality changes, seizures, hyperactive, deep tendon reflexes, etc. EKG might show that long QT prolongation. I think about low calcium being really slow, so it's slow to get from Q to T, so you'll have that QT prolongation with hyper calcemia, which runs the risks of torsades to points and death. Ionized calcium is the most active form of calcium, so this will be low, secondary to the low PTH from the likely resected parathyroids leading to that loss of production. Treatment for primary hypoparathyroidism is with immediate replacement of calcium and vitamin D. If the patient has tetany, especially with that hoarse voice from a possible bronchospasm, you need to ensure their airway is secure and give them IV calcium gluconate. The patient should be also started on long-term recovery combinant PTH. Your patient has a history of bipolar disorder and has been well-controlled on lithium therapy. However, when they come in for a follow-up visit, they share they've been having difficulty getting anything done because suddenly they've been urinating so much very frequently and seem to always be thirsty. Given the suspected diagnosis, what do you suspect the urine osmolality will be after restricting water and initiating a vasopressin challenge? No change to her urine osmolality. This patient likely has nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which is most commonly caused by that chronic lithium use. In nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, the ADH secreted by the posterior pituitary has little to no effect on the kidney, and so the message to concentrate urine more to preserve that intravascular fluid is blunted, and that's going to lead to a large volume of diluted urine. Because the kidneys are resistant to ADH, giving desmopressin, which is that analog of ADH in the vasopressin challenge, will not have any effect on concentrating the urine. Restricting the water will also have no effect on concentrating urine, so you can rule out a primary or psychogenic polydipsia with that. In nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, patients will have an increased serum osmolality, and that's due to that total overall volume depletion, which can lead to the subsequent rise of intravascular sodium and protein. That's why sodium and protein restriction is part of the pearls of treatment in addition to adding hydrochlorothiazide, which in a patient with a low-solute diet can relieve polydipsia and inducing that mild volume depletion will subsequently induce proximal sodium and water reabsorption. 
Additionally, endomethacin, an NSAID, can improve nephrogenic diabetes insipidus due to the inhibition of the renal prostaglandin synthesis, which antagonizes ADH. Central diabetes insipidus, which is more common than nephrogenic and is most commonly idiopathic or secondary to tumors involving the hypothalamic pituitary region. In cases of central diabetes insipidus, you want to consider pituitary imaging to rule out a mass lesion if there's no obvious cause. For time's sake, let's keep it rolling and move on to neurology, which makes up 8% of the EOR. Your patient arrives to the clinic for evaluation of her progressive bilateral tremor in her hands that's worse when she's trying to write or use her phone. She states she's noticed this tremor for a few years and thinks it might progressively be getting worse. History reveals she only consumes about one to two beers a week, but she's noticed an improvement in her tremors during that time. Physical reveals symmetrical fine tremors in her upper extremities that's worse when she closes her eyes and is asked to hold a piece of paper. Assuming she has the most common movement disorder, what medication should you initiate? You can either do long-term propranolol or episodic primidone or propranolol, and that's considered first line for a central tremor, which is the most common movement disorder and leads to this working tremor, which is more noticeable with activity. Differentiate this with that tremor in Parkinsonism, which is a resting tremor, so you'll see that at rest more than with activity, and commonly described as that unilateral pill rolling tremor initially. Your patient is a 25-year-old female with an unremarkable past medical history who presents to the ER due to her bilateral, non-pulsating headache that feels like it is quote-unquote squeezing her head in all directions. She denies any nausea, vomiting, photophobia, or other vision changes. She states this isn't the first time it happened, and in fact this has happened at least 10 times in the past couple years when she started her new fast-paced, stressful job. What do you suspect is this patient's diagnosis? Tension headache. Tension headaches are the most common headache in the general population and are most commonly caused by stress and will not be aggravated by everyday activity. There might be an associated neck muscle tenderness and the pain will be described as like constriction in a band-like pattern involving the frontalis all the way around to the occipitalis. No other alarming features will be present in patients with this diagnosis and you can make this diagnosis clinically without any diagnostic studies if the patient is otherwise healthy and the tension type headache presents pretty classically and there is no neurological symptoms. Treatment is with acetaminophen or NSAIDs, and you can consider TCAs as a preventative treatment if the patient can't decrease stressors or has impaired functionality or quality of life. Your patient is a 49-year-old male that is brought to the ER by his wife due to his new onset of nausea, vomiting, and weakness. He states he thinks this is just due to a migraine he's had for the past couple weeks, but this has been progressively worsening. It's especially worse when he sits up in the morning after sleeping or when coughing, sneezing, or even bending down to pick something up. Head CT with contrast reveals an intracranial mass, which primary malignancy suspected in this patient is both most common and has the poorest prognosis. Glioblastoma, which is a grade 4 astrocytoma. This is a type of glial primary tumor, termed glioma, and the most common grade of astrocytoma in adults is grade 4, which is termed glioblastoma. That unfortunately also carries the poorest prognosis. In children, the most common primary malignant tumor is a medulloblastoma, but overall, the most common CNS tumor in children is astrocytoma as well, but that's usually benign for them. So be sure to read the stem carefully to see if they're asking about the most common primary CNS malignancy or the most common primary CNS tumor overall. In adults, when considering the cause for intracranial tumors, the most common intracranial malignancies in adults overall are not primary but instead they're secondary to MET from origin sites, usually the lung, breast, kidneys, or colorectal malignancies, and even melanoma. Suspect a brain tumor or intracranial mass in anyone presenting with constant and progressive headache that is worse during activities that lead to increased intracranial pressure and can induce nausea and vomiting. Another high-yield intracranial malignancy to remember in pediatrics is retinoblastoma, which is the malignancy of the retina and will typically present in a stem in a child under 3 years old with leukocoria, and that means the absence of the red light reflex. Your patient is a 12-year-old male, ANO times 4, who was admitted to your service in the early fall after he presented the ER with headache and fever and was found to have nuchal rigidity. When reviewing the results of his CSF analysis, you note a slight elevation in lymphocytes, normal protein, and normal glucose. What do you suspect as the causative agent to his diagnosis?
enterovirus. The most common cause of meningitis is viral, which is most commonly enterovirus. And that will present in a patient in late summer or fall with the classic triad of headache, fever, and nuchal rigidity with no change in mental status. Remember, once there's a change in mental status, that is encephalitis. Nuchal rigidity is usually described by the presence of a kernic sign, which is when the provider extends the knees and that leads to either neck pain or bending of the neck, and Brudzinski sign, which is when the provider bends the neck, resulting in a leg raise. In patients with viral meningitis, CSF is typically unremarkable but might have lymphocytes. If bacterial meningitis is the cause, CSF would show increased protein and decreased glucose in addition to the leukocytosis and an increased opening pressure. Think of this as the bacteria and the CSF eating up all of the glucose leading to this overall depletion. The most common cause of bacterial meningitis overall is strep pneumo, but suspect Neisseria meningitis if a patient appears with a petechial rash in the setting of their meningitis. In a neonate with bacterial meningitis, you should suspect E. coli as the most common cause. I remember this as E. coli coming from fecal matter, which the neonate might have encountered during the delivery. In an immunocompromised patient, like an AIDS patient, consider fungal causes, specifically like cryptococcus meningitis, which can be diagnosed on the India ink stain. The treatment of viral meningitis is supportive, but anytime HSV is suspected, or the herpes simplex virus, which is the most common cause of encephalitis, you give IV acyclovir. Patients with bacterial meningitis should be treated with empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics and dexamethasone, and their household and close contacts should be started on rifampin. We'll cover more neuro later, but let's move on to our last heavy hitter that has its own dedicated section before our rapid review, urology and renal. This makes up 8% of the EOR. Your patient arrives to the ER with marked dehydration secondary to a diarrheal illness. ABG shows pH of 7.34, bicarb of 18, PCO2 of 35, and an anion gap of 12. What acid-based abnormality does she exhibit? Non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. The most common cause of metabolic acidosis is severe and or persistent diarrhea. ABG will show a metabolic acidosis due to the resulting loss of bicarb, which leads to the acidity. You might have compensatory decrease in PCO2 due to that rapid respiratory compromise seen in metabolic acid-based conditions. Alternatively, in respiratory causes of acid-based disorders, the compensation is much slower due to the time it takes to alter the bicarb or hydrogen enough to cause a compensatory change. I remember the lab values quickly with the mnemonic Rome, R-O-M-E, respiratory opposite, metabolic equal, to remind me that in respiratory acid-based disorders, PCO2 direction will be opposite of the pH direction. For example, in respiratory acidosis, the pH will be low, which is acidotic, and the PCO2 will be high, like over 45, versus what our patient has, metabolic acidosis, where we look to the bicarb after seeing the pH and determine that both of these are low, so they're equally declining, versus a metabolic alkalosis where both the pH and bicarb will be elevated, as opposed to respiratory alkalosis, remember respiratory opposite, where you'll see the elevated pH but a decline in PCO2. Anion gap is determined by first adding the values for chloride and bicarb and then adding the value for sodium. It's typically normal if it's under about 14. Separate anion gap metabolic acidosis from non-anion gap metabolic acidosis with the mnemonic mud piles, which stands for methanol, uremia, DKA, propylene glycol, isoniazid intoxication, lactic acidosis, ethanol or ethylene glycol, and salicylates. Non-anion gap metabolic acidosis can be remembered with the mnemonic HARDAS, which stands for hyperalimentation, Addison's disease, renal tubular acidosis, diarrhea, acetazolamide, spironolactone, and saline infusion. Your patient is a 55-year-old current smoker who presents with hematuria without any endorsement of dysuria. You discover he's had a good amount of weight loss since his last visit, and he states it just fell off him without even trying. Given his current presentation, what diagnostic test should you order? Cystoscopy. This is because it gives a direct visualization of the bladder and the ability to biopsy since you probably have a suspected diagnosis of bladder cancer. You can also consider UA with cytology initially and or a CT urography or abdominal pelvis CT. The most common type of bladder cancer in the U.S. is transitional cell carcinoma 
And the most important risk factor for bladder cancer is smoking, but other identified risk factors in the stem might include infection from schistoma or an occupational exposure. Suspect bladder cancer in any patient with painless hematuria. Advanced stages might even present with lower extremity edema and bone pain, and that's secondary to the metastasis. You are consulted in the ED for a possible admission of a 41-year-old male that presents with sudden and severe flank pain that radiates to his groin and has already made him vomit several times. Despite NSAIDs, he continues to have so much pain he can't even sit still. He reports recent blood in his urine and results of the non-contrast helical abdominal pelvic CT scan are pending, but bedside ultrasound shows ipsilateral mild hydronephrosis. What do you suspect is causing this patient's current condition? This is acute obstruction of the ureter secondary to nephrolithiasis or renal calculi that has likely gotten lodged in his ureteral vesicle junction. The most common type of a nephrolith is calcium oxalate. Dehydration is the enemy of the patient with nephrolithiasis, so IVF or intravascular fluid restoration is needed, and opioids and NSAIDs can be used for the pain. Alpha blockers and even CCBs are useful in relaxing the smooth muscles to allow for stone passage. However, if a stone is over 8 millimeters, it's unlikely it's going to pass on its own, and that requires an urgent referral to a urologist for a likely surgical intervention. All right, guys, that was a lot of internal medicine, and there's still three topics to go, including hematology, infectious disease, and critical care. For the sake of time, I'm going to release a rapid review separately, and that will be the rapid review for internal medicine that covers more high yield of the topics we've already covered, plus those remaining topics. Like, subscribe, comment, do all the things to get this information out there. Thank you so much for joining me, and I will see you in the rapid review. Thank you for joining me today on PassPat. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. As a responsible disclaimer, PassPat is not intended to be used as medical or legal advice, and though I try to always keep it educational and evidence-based, any and all opinions or viewpoints shared on PassPat do not represent those of my employer or the profession at large.